You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're beginning our new study of the book of Malachi. We're calling Heavy Words from a Loving Father. With this week's message, here's shepherding pastor Joe Cook. Well, if you were watching the video, you notice that our title of our new series are Heavy Words from a Loving Father. And about five minutes before the first service, I was sitting in the back with Lance, and I thought, hey, this is Father's Day. <laughs> and our series is Heavy Words from a Loving Father. So happy Father's Day, by the way, to all you fathers that are here. You know, one of the duties of a good father, and I hope that you had or have a good father, not all of us did, but sometimes a good father has to have heavy conversations with their children or maybe with a friend. It's not just about uh, fathers and children. It could be mothers and daughters, mothers and sons. It could be friend to friend, mature disciple to maturing disciple. Heavy conversations, though, aren't easy to lean into. Maybe you're like me, and you don't like them. <laughs> they can be kind of, you know, it's, it's conflict in a sense, and I'm conflict-averse. If I can avoid a conflict, I will. But as I've learned, as I've grown, as I've matured, I've recognized I can't. I can't avoid the heavy conversations. So whether it's from an employer to an employee or a friend to a friend, those conversations have to be had at some time or another. And one of the things that we were, I was thinking about doing today is sharing with you one of the hard conversations that I've had in my life. And as I went through my list of heavy conversations that I've had, I thought, I don't want them to know that. <laughs> I better not say that because that kind of calls this person out. And you know why it would be inappropriate for me to share one of these heavy conversations with you? Because they're very intimate. It's in a context of a relationship. That takes place at a home. That takes place maybe at a coffee shop with a dear friend. It's not a, a place to stand in front of hundreds of people and share those stories because they're heavy. We're going to be looking at a heavy conversation one that it's almost like we've walked into the room of a father talking to his children, and there's going to be some, some very heavy things that are said. So I'm going to ask you to join me in the book of Malachi. It's the last book in our English uh, copy of the Bible in the Old Testament. Malachi would be the last book before Matthew, okay? So if you know where Matthew is, just back up a few pages. We're going to be in Malachi. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, feel free to grab one. This being the last book, there's going to be a 400-year gap of prophetic voices. When God has this heavy conversation, it's going to be a while before he says anything else, reveals anything else to them. So last words for a long time, and they're very important words. So if you made your way to Malachi, look at chapter 1, and let's look at verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now let's just stop. Sometimes first verses we can go past real quick. There's a lot of information in here. That word oracle is not one we just walk around going, hey, let me tell you an oracle. No, it's, it's not a common word for our language. Some of your translations may say burden, and that's actually a little bit more literal. The Hebrews that were having this read to them or spoken to them would have heard the word masa, and masa means heavy, burden, weighty, and it became to be an example, came to be a, 
a phrase for a heavy conversation. Maybe, you know, if your father or mother ever used your full name, like if they were calling me Joe Ed Cook Jr., yes, my middle name's Ed, I'm sorry. Joe Ed Cook Jr., you get in here, when you hear your full name, guess what? You know something's coming, right? So what we have here, the oracle. When the Hebrew children, when the Hebrew people heard this, they were like, hmm, something heavy is coming. And he says, it's the word of the Lord, the king of kings, uh, the maker of the universe has something to say to you, to Israel by Malachi. Now, it's an interesting thing they want to see is it's to Israel. You know, why would we have a hard conversation? Why does God do this? I'm going to quote for you my friend, someone you know, Lance Bourgeois, our senior pastor. He has a really good way of saying this, of explaining why we would lean into hard conversations. He says this, we will continue to step into awkward conversations because of the significance of the relationship. I've heard him say that multiple times, and I asked him if I could quote it because it succinctly explains basically what is happening here. We lean into hard conversations. God leans into hard conversations because he cares, because the relationship is significant. Notice that this oracle is to Israel and not against Israel. One scholar has explained it this way. He says, the oracles included here will be heavy and stern, but messages are also consolatory. They're not against Israel, notice, but to Israel. And there are hopeful notes of forgiveness and blessing and joy if the people will heed the warnings. There's a reason that we have hard conversations. There's a goal that we have in mind. You know, the Proverbs puts it this way. My son, do not despise the words or the discipline, uh, uh, the Lord's discipline, or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Who does the father reprove? the son in whom he delights. You see, this conversation is to Israel. We could even say it's for Israel. It's to benefit them. He's taking the time to say some heavy things to them. So now go with me to verse 2. As we move into this, I want you to understand a connection between this series and the last series. In the last series, our, our title was to be transformed as the seven marks of a maturing disciple. And to be a mature disciple, you had to lean into the Lord. You had to lean on Jesus Christ, abiding in Him. That's how you grow. That's how you mature. And what we see in Malachi is a group of people who had a covenant, who had this invitation to come near to God, but they weren't making use of it. They weren't leaning in. And God says to this and says to them in verse 2, I have loved you says the Lord, but you say, they respond to him, how have you loved us? And God speaks, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, and we're going to go into verse 3, but Esau I have hated. Now, if you remember my explanation, it's almost like we walked in on a very personal conversation. If you'd walked in and you heard this and you weren't a Jewish person and you listen to this, you may go, okay. He says, I love them. He says, I love you. We may hear that and say, okay, he cares about us. There's things about us that he likes. He wants to be near us. That's when we hear love. And then he starts talking about these guys, Jacob and Esau. And, you know, when you have a heavy conversation, your father may start off with, 
I know what you did, and it doesn't even have to be explained. We're kind of coming in on a private conversation. There's some things here we have to dig into. These four words, I have loved you, we're going to talk about those for quite a while this morning. He's pointing to something that they understood. He says, I have loved you. That word love is a whole lot more than an emotion. In fact, we're going to learn that it's a technical term for a covenant. And you're going to hear me use that word covenant a lot this morning. He's reminding them of a covenant that they have with Yahweh, the king of the universe, the creator of the world. One scholar, Eugene Merrill, says this about the word love. There may well be emotional overtones to the term, and we'll talk about that before we're done. But notice what he says. Fundamentally, it's one of a legal or social nature. Now, that's very important. Fundamentally, when he says, I have loved you, there is a legal and social nature to that that you and I miss because we throw the word love around pretty haphazardly. I love ice cream. Okay, well, when I say I love ice cream, that's not the same as when I say I love my wife. Okay, the context matters. There's a context here, and those references to Jacob and Esau are going to help us in a moment. But what I want you to understand is they knew what he was talking about, so I'm going to tell you what he's talking about. We're going to do a little rewind this morning. We're going to talk about this idea of a covenant. Now, what we're going to do is I'm going to take you to some passages in Genesis. We obviously don't have time this morning to totally exegete the Abrahamic covenant. For those of you that have been around uh, studying the Scripture for a while, you will know that would take some time. That would be a series in itself. So in your notes, in your version, or in your bulletin, there's some Scripture references. I would encourage you to go and read a little bit more about this. If some of this sounds like I'm maybe going a little too fast, we're going to kind of hit a few high points. 1,400 years earlier, God approached a man by the name of Abram, and he made some promises to him. This man Abram's name would be changed to Abraham, which is a name you've probably heard. And he makes three basic promises. I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you seed or offspring, and I'm going to bless you. And there's going to be a series of blessings. Not only am I going to bless you, but I'll bless those who bless you. And you will be a blessing. So there's a lot of blessing involved in this promise. And Abraham, Abraham believed him. Now that's amazing. But as that narrative progresses through Genesis, that part that I told you is going to progress to a place in Genesis 15. And God is sort of, or not sort of, he's going to make it legal, official, in, their, in the way they did it in their day and age. This past week, we sold my mom's house in Oklahoma, and I had to go to the title agency, and I signed my name, and the buyer was signing their name, and I signed mine. Lots of paperwork to sell a house. You know, lots of signing going on. So a covenant is a little bit like a contract, but not exactly. In ancient times, they would take, and take sacrificial animals, and they would cut them in half, and they would put them in two rows, And the idea was that to seal the deal, to make the covenant official, the two people who were making a promise to one another would walk through that arm in arm, side by side, and they would recite the covenant. They would recite the promise. Two chieftains might say, hey, let's not fight. Let's have a covenant of peace. And so they would walk through, and as they would walk through, he would say, I will not cross the border to do war with you. And he would say, I will not cross the border to make war with you. And when they got to the end, it was official. It's like last paper signed. But here's the thing. If one of them didn't stick to their end of the bargain, you know what would happen? That's what all these bloody carcasses are for. 
That's what's going to happen to the person that doesn't keep the covenant. Our contracts are a little bit different today. <laughs> you know, the closest thing to a covenant we have is the marriage covenant. When I, had a, when, I had, when I married my wife, I made a promise to her, till death do us part. But even if a marriage covenant is broken in our day, we don't cut people in half. You know, this was a very serious thing. And so when God ratifies this covenant with this man Abraham, something very strange happens. And if you go back and you read, God puts Abraham in a sleep, like a trance. And in that vision, God himself passes through those pieces, and he recites the land, seed, and blessing promises. Abraham doesn't walk through. Do you know what that means? Everything is on God. Everything's on him. Abraham's over here, and he's just receiving it. He's not walking through. One scholar kind of explains the details for us this way. Let's take the time to read this by Arnold Fruchtenbaum. He says, So Abraham did not become an active participant in the signing and sealing of the covenant. As such, he was only, notice, the recipient of the covenant and the covenantal promises. It meant that no matter how often Abraham failed, and he tells us, and he will fail in the next chapter, and no matter how often his seed, the Jewish people, fail, the Abrahamic covenant cannot be rendered null or void. It's an unconditional promise. When we read the words in Malachi, I have loved you, everyone in that Hebrew nation who heard that, they should be remembering that covenant. But we're going to see how they respond. But let's point out a couple of new other things. Notice this bringing up of Esau and Jacob. Sounds a little strange to you. What's that about? Well, Esau and Jacob are these twins that are born to Abraham as their grandsons. That covenantal blessing passes from Abraham to his son Isaac, and then his son Isaac marries a woman by the name of Rebekah. And that's where we're going to see these promises really start to blossom into reality. But she, when she becomes pregnant, she has two in her womb, twins. But something starts to go wrong with the pregnancy. She starts to feel a great deal of pain, and so she calls out to Yahweh. She says, what's going on? Why is there this trouble? And I want you to see what God says to her. And this sounds a little strange, but God's slowly revealing more and more to them about this. And he's going to give Rebecca an important bit of information. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, two peoples from, with, two peoples for, from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. I'm going to leave that up. I want you to notice, in this covenant that's passed from Abraham to Isaac, and now Isaac has these two boys. Which one, when you have twins, which one's it going to be? And God says, one will serve the other. It's an indication, it's a hint. One of them will receive the full blessing. Remember how powerful it is. God said, no matter what you do, Land, seed, and blessing are yours. Who's that going to pass to when you have twins? And God's starting to indicate it's going to go to one. In Malachi, we see, he says, Jacob, I have loved, Esau, I have hated. I want you to know that these words, love and hate, they tell us, they talk about matters of emotion and heart. But remember what Eugene Merrill said? They're fundamentally words about choice. They're fundamentally about words of legality. He's saying, I'm choosing Jacob. Let's look again at another word 
from Eugene Merrill. He says, what Yahweh is saying here then is that in ancient times he chose Jacob to be a special recipient of his grace, the channel through whom he would mediate his salvific purposes. Now that's an important point. Look at it again. He's choosing Jacob to be the channel. You know, this language of love and hate, it it bothers us. Sometimes people look at the Old Testament and they feel like, we even hear people say the God of the Old Testament is mean and harsh. And listen, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same. The love and the grace that we see in the New Testament is present here. When we read God says in Malachi, I've loved one and hated the other, I've chosen one and I've not chosen the other. Jesus uses this kind of hyperbolic language in Luke 14 when he says, unless you hate your mother and father, unless you hate your children, unless you hate your own life, you cannot follow me. That's the same one who said, love your enemy. Love your neighbor as yourself. This isn't about, this isn't about affection. This isn't about bitterness or, or even anger towards someone. It's about choosing one and not choosing the other. If I had a job that required me to have a great big pickup, I could go to the dealership, and if there were two trucks, exactly the same make, model, and everything, same color, I'm not going to buy both of them. I don't need two. I just need one. That's what's happening here. God's saying, I'm going to choose one, and I'm going to work through him. And he wants Israel to remember this. What were the most important four words I told you? I have loved you, Israel. You're special. You've been called to a unique purpose. You have a unique plan in the scheme of how I'm going to bring salvation to the world. But we still wrestle with it. Does this mean God is is mad at this poor little baby in the womb? No, that's not what it means. As that narrative in Genesis continues, you get to Genesis 28, and God approaches Jacob as a grown man now. He gives Jacob a vision. And in this vision to Jacob... He explains it's heaven and earth coming together, and he repeats the promises to Jacob that he said to Abraham. Let's read that together. In Genesis 28, 13, we read, And behold, the Lord stood above it, that's above the vision, as it were. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. There's the first two, land and seed, okay? Continues. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now let's stop. How many families in the earth are going to be blessed? How many? All. That's a big deal. Guess who has a family? Esau. So is God, when we read the word hatred, is he saying, I've got nothing to do with him, he's a horrible, terrible person, and I'm going to do away with him and his hope? No. It's about choosing one to bless everyone. God is creating what, he, what we call a covenant. He's, he's, he has cut a covenant with this people, and he started with Abraham. He's brought it to Jacob, and now everyone, we're going to see that as this story progresses, as the account progresses, God wants the others to come in. Edom, which is the nation that springs from Esau, they could have chosen to be a part of that covenant. They could have chosen to follow Yahweh. Now, that's not going to be what happens. They're going to fact and find themselves continually outside the covenant 
by their own choice, by their refusal to enter in, and even by their attacks on Israel. But it's important that we see this. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Are you a family? Do you have a family? Yes, you do. God's approach to the human race has always been to create a place, to create walls where people could come in, they could be loved, they could be provided for, and he's offering that to that whole region, that whole area. God says, I have loved you. He says, I didn't use Jake, I didn't use Edom, I didn't use Esau. Jacob, I've used you, and you're special, and you're unique. When Derek was up here, he told us, uh, he wrote, recited for us John 3.16, for God so loved the world, the whole world. What is God doing? God is creating a way for everyone to come in. And just like with that um, covenant that he cut with Abraham, in the New Testament, we have what's referred to by the prophets of old as the new covenant that's coming. There's going to be a new covenant where I will put, I will replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And when Derek was up here and he was speaking these verses to you, he invited you to place your faith in Jesus. And if you did that, if you heard the words that he said in Romans 10, when Paul recites this, he says, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Do you notice that? There's no, no distinction. Everyone is welcome. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing on his riches all who call on him. And in that last verse, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What's taking place here in Malachi is going to come to a greater fulfillment in the New Testament. When God says, I have loved you, he's saying, I have created a way for you. I've created a pathway for you. A while ago, if you listened to Derek and you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have entered into something. You've entered into a covenant of love where God is even saying to you through Christ, through the new covenant, I have loved you. And that have isn't I used to. It's in the perfect tense. It means I did love you. I do love you. And I will always love you. And it all depends upon me. Only God walked through that sacrifice. And when we get to the new covenant, only God goes to the cross. It's all on him. We have a security. We have a blessing. And when he's talking to the people through Malachi, he's telling, don't you see how I've blessed you? I have loved you. Now look at their response. They say to him, how have you loved us? The audacious ingratitude. I don't know if you ever had a strong-willed child. Strong-willed grandchild, maybe a strong-willed neighbor, which is even worse than children. Okay, what are they doing in your house? So five minutes before dinner, can I have a piece of cake? No, you'll ruin your dinner. They stomp their foot. You don't love me. That's what's taking place here. The God of the universe has reminded them the covenant. You remember? I have loved you. And they're saying, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? Do you know what their frustration is? Same one that you and I have, if we're honest. They were looking around at the world, and the world wasn't easy. The world wasn't what they wanted. God wasn't their genie in the bottle. God wasn't their butler. And they were asking questions in a different way, but we ask them this way. Why do good things happen to bad people? If you're so good, why is this so hard? 
I've been there. You've been there. You may be there. You may be there right now. And what God's going to do throughout this book is he's going to remind them of this covenant. These four words, I have loved you, it's the cornerstone and it's the context for this whole series. We have to remember when we sit down at the table that we're sitting down before a loving, good father who has committed himself to us, not based on our goodness or our behavior, but on his character. I have loved you. And now he's going to illustrate that for them by pointing out a little history. So look again with me. We're going to pick up where we left off in verse 3. We're going to read through verse 5. Starts off, says, I have laid waste. This is God speaking. And he's talking about Edom, the nation that flew, that came out of Esau. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. God's saying, I'm going to use your brother, so to speak, as an example. Now, he had the option to follow Yahweh, but the reality is, is that, that Esau and then the nation that came from him, Edom, they opposed Israel. When they came out of Egypt, God said, don't mess with your brother Edom. I've, I'm protecting him. But then Edom did the exact opposite. They attacked Israel. They persecuted Israel. They celebrated it when Israel was under, under attack. And one of the promises to Abraham is, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. But now I'm going to tell you, if we were to compare the history of Israel over 1,400 years and the history of Edom over 1,400 years, and we were to weigh their sins, it would be real hard to tell who was the worst. Maybe we could say Israel's were worse because they had the most revelation. And yet God's saying, you know that nation, you know your nation, you know their history, you know your history, but they're going to disappear. They have sowed wickedness and they will receive and they will reap wickedness. They have pursued wickedness. They have decided to be outside of the covenant and that is where they shall remain. In fact, I'm going to call their land the land of wickedness. And they have chosen that path and that's the path that they will be able to go down. But he says, but you, even though you've gone down that path, I'm not done with you. Something happened in the 5th century BC, which is about the time that Malachi is writing here. A, a, war, a warring tribe of people came in, the Nabataeans, and they wipe out the Edomite territory. So much so that the Edomites have to flee and they kind of get dispersed into other nations. And that word Edom and the, and the term Edomite kind of disappears. You're never going to walk down the street here or anywhere in Israel and meet someone and say, hey, where are you from? What's your ethnicity? And they're going to say, I'm an Edomite. <laughs> That's not going to happen. Because God said, their time is done. Now, they had 1,400 years, by the way, to catch on. How many of you believe that you're going to father a nation that will last over a millennium? It's not like God was unfair or unjust with Esau. No, he, he had a lot of blessings in, and of him, in his own right. What we have here is God is giving them an example that should be even more powerful to you and I. He's saying, they will disappear, but you will remain. So that was 1,400 years of history. 
We now are 4,000 years after the day that Abraham watched God alone walk through that promise. And you know what? There's still Jewish people around. Mark Twain wrote an article in Harper's Magazine in 1898, and he was pontificating on this reality that Israel still exists. And he starts off this way. I'm not going to read the whole thing. He says, Jews start, they, they constitute one quarter of 1% of the human race. That was in 1898. Well, I went to check. That's still about the same. One quarter of 1%. And then he goes on to say, the Jew should hardly even be heard of. But he is heard of. He's always been heard of. He's as prominent on the planet as any other people. And he goes on, he says, extravagantly out of proportion to their small nature. And then he starts to talk about all the nations that have risen on the earth and all of the people groups that have come up and made a great noise and then disappeared, but not the Jew. He goes on, the Jew saw them all, survived them all, and is now what he always was, exhibiting no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his engines, no dulling of his alert but aggressive mind. All things are mortal, but the Jew... All other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? Now, Twain's waxing poetic about this immortality thing. He's not saying individual Jews are immortal, but he's asking an important question that you and I should ask. Why are they still here? When nation after nation has tried to destroy them, Twain is asking the question, why is this one quarter of 1% people... Why are they making such a noise? Go and check your history at the impact that Jewish people have made through the course of the world. Why is the Jew still here? Turn to Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you. That's why they're here. It's one of the great apologetics of history. When God makes a commitment that depends upon his character, his strength, his love, not upon the behavior or the goodness of the one promised to, it lasts, and it lasts forever. And not only is he not done with the Jews, he's got a future for them. He hasn't laid them aside forever. Tom Constable quotes about this section in Malachi. He says this, The point of this section was to get the Jews of the Restoration community to get their attention. Who were they thinking that God had abandoned them? And forgotten his promises to them. He was trying to get them to think, to think again. Do you see that? Even though they seem to be experiencing the same fate as their ancient enemy, the Edomites, God would restore them because he had entered into a covenant relationship with them. The same people that opposed Israel were opposing the Edomites. And God said, but they will disappear, but you will not. You're going to remain have you ever been where they are? Maybe felt abandoned. Maybe felt like God's not making a lot of sense. Have you ever stomped your foot and said, how do you love me? I have. I bet you have at some point in your life too. He's correcting them with a very heavy conversation. Now before we move to our conclusion, I, I want us to move past that word, I have loved you, without talking about the emotional part of it. It's not like God is this cold, emotionless engineer in the sky who puts all the pieces together and then hits start and steps back. 
No, his heart's engaged too. I love these beautiful verses from Isaiah 49. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget. This is God speaking. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. Your walls are continually before me. God says, a mother may forget the child that she nurses, but I'll never forget you. God's heart's engaged. It's not just a cold-hearted engagement of legalities. And there's a favorite passage that I have, and if you want to turn there, you can, or you can just listen. But in Hosea chapter 11, and I commend it to your reading, we get a little peek into the tenderness of God's heart when we read this. This is verse, chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to the idols. Yet, it was I who caught Ephraim, taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I caught them by the arms. We have so many beautiful new children in our church, toddlers running around. Have you ever seen the parents holding them by the hands and walking them, teaching them to walk? That's what is being talked about in Hosea. God says, I taught you to walk. He continues, he said, I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke of their jaw and bent down to feed them. And it goes on and on. I'll skip down to verse 8 and listen to this. Just let it wash over you. God's words to his people. How can I give you up? O Ephraim, how can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? These were cities then in Sodom and Gomorrah. And then these words, my heart recoils within me. It means that churns within me. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. His love, when he says, I have loved you, is not just a commitment of legality. It's not just a social contract. His heart is engaged. He's fully for you. And yet these people looked at him and they said, how have you loved us? And sometimes we do too. We can relate to them. This life is hard. God doesn't always act like the kind of God we want him to do. Life is not easy, comfortable. It's not always entertaining. It's difficult. And it's easy for us to, to join them and and be ungrateful. And we're going to see the different sins that flow out of their ungratefulness. We're going to see the different trials that flow out of their lack of appreciation. And this hard conversation is going to continue. But for you and I this morning, I want us to walk away with a game plan of how this won't happen to us. And what God is doing at the beginning of this conversation, when he sits down with his son Israel, he's saying, remember, I have loved you. The covenant, the commitment, the context of love. We need to remember the covenant we have, the new covenant. So this is in your notes. We're going to walk through a few verses, the promises of our covenant that we can hold on to, that if we meditate on these, if we let them get planted in our hearts and grow and produce fruit, these will keep us from being audaciously ungrateful. John 10, 28 and 29, Jesus said, I give them... Put your name in there if you've placed your faith in him. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This promise means we're secure. Do you remember that promise of God? It depended upon His strength, His character, His love. In the new covenant, our security, once you place your faith in Him, once you're born again, you're as secure as the strength of the hands of God Himself. We don't have to be afraid of being kicked out of the family because of our behavior. That's the security. We need to remember that. And how much more appreciative should we be to have that security? What about this one? In our new, co- in our new covenant, we can be forgiven. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If this fellowship between me and my Father in this new covenant, if it breaks down, if I go off on a pathway that I know is not best, He's saying, come back to me. There's a way back. Our fellowship can be restored. When I think about the fact that I can't out his love and his grace, appreciation begins to grow. Therefore, we are ambassadors. I want you to see we have purpose in this new covenant. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We have a job to do. We're here for a reason. He's left us here for a purpose. We're here to be ambassadors. We get to tell the whole world, come in. No one has to live outside in that wicked place outside the covenant. No one has to be Edom. No one has to be Esau. The doors are open, and we get to tell the world about that. That's a purpose. He says he'll meet all of our needs. And my God will supply every need of yours according to your riches in glory, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I want you to highlight that word need. Not everything you want. Life's not going to be easy, comfortable, and always entertaining. But he says, whatever you need, you're going to have. What else? This is my favorite one. What else do we have to think about and meditate on in the new covenant? We have this. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He gives us himself. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. I have one promise that I can make you. Life will not continue to work out the way you expect it to. Have you learned that yet? It's the anti-Disney thing, right? Then he said, you can dream it, you can do it, you can be whatever you want to be. No, you can't. Life is going to be hard. There's going to be surprises. There are going to be things that make it more challenging to you. But here's the promise of the God of the heaven of, heaven of heavens. I will be with you. You don't have to go through it alone. Whatever your sickness, whatever your concern, whatever your trial, you don't have to lean into it alone. You have someone who loves you and wants to walk with you through it. And finally, we have a future. 1 John 3, 1 and 2, if you really pay attention, it should blow your mind, okay? Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. Why? What's he talking about? What you will be has not yet appeared? But we know that when he appears, speaking of Jesus, we shall be like him. Are you kidding me? (laughs) We're going to be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's your future in Christ. You're going to be like him. You're going to be fully glorified, freed from the sin, freed from this body of sickness and death and the flesh, and like him. Can you imagine living in contentment? There's a lot of things that I'm excited about, but just contentment, a peaceful mind. 
we have a future. How can we be ungrateful? How can we forget the God who has said, I have loved you? Let us not be like the people in Malachi's day. One more. 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. This one just to remind us. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon him. And notice those last words. He cares for you. The words I have loved you were words to the people of Malachi's day. They were to them, but they're also for us. All through the New Testament, we have Jesus saying the same thing. I love you. And if we forget this context, as we move into this hard conversation, we could become angry. We could become more disenfranchised from the Father. This is a conversation that's heavy, but it's in the context of love. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.